Today on Novell Open Audio, we'll be talking about GroupWise with uh, Dave, Bill Pre- Dave, what kind of lame intro is that? Let's pick what? it up a little bit, will you? Oh, okay. Today on Novell Open Audio, we'll be talking about GroupWise no, with no, Bill... No, 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 no. Go back to your original accent. Oh. Today on Novell Open Audio, we'll be talking about GroupWise with Bill Prey and Gregory Webb. And later, we've got an extended technical interview with the business continuity clustering developers. Coming up on Novell Open Audio... Welcome to Novell Open Audio, the podcast that connects the Novell user community with what's going on inside and around the Novell universe. And I'm your host, Caitlin Yuns. And I'm Randy Goddard. And I'm David Mayer. So, Randy, I hear you had an interview and you were actually trying to ask questions, but you just couldn't get one in. Well, you know, there's one thing that I've learned now is that in the pre recording interview don't lay all of your cards on the table and let the interviewee know exactly what you want to ask because then they address it without letting you get a word in edgewise but david did in the studio with us we have gregory webb product marketing manager for groupwise and bill prey project manager for groupwise gentlemen welcome hello thank you hello so we're going to talk about the future of GroupWise, where the product's going. And I know there's a lot planned. So, Bill, tell me about the big features you got in line. So in our next release, we are really focusing on the knowledge worker and enabling them to be productive in the environment. And, then, and it's all about them working in their personal workspace, which is their GroupWise client, and getting things done, collecting information, categorizing it, putting it into the buckets that they need, having their calendar, their contacts, all of that information available to them. So we are focusing on really making that client a personal assistant. And through that, you need to be able to manage your tasks, manage your time, and manage your contacts, as well as your email. Okay, but I'm thinking GroupWise already does that. Where's the new in all of this. So what's new about it is, is in, in being the personal assistant, the key there is providing a multiple variety and choice in the client, right? So that you're not stuck in one particular OS or in one particular environment. So that means we already have a very rich Windows client, but we've got work to do on our Linux client. And we know that. And so in this next release, fantastic things are happening there. It, it will be a true premier top of the line knowledge worker tool. The right, other things you're, we, you're upselling that a lot, but really the yeah. question is, what about comparison of functionality with the existing Windows client? Are we looking at convergence there? Well, the existing Windows client has had double-digit years of development, okay? Let's be honest. Yeah. It's got a lot of time underneath it, and we're always going to lead with that, obviously, as our premier client. But we're doing a lot of things specifically in the Linux client to bring it up to par, and in this next release, it will be very similar to the experience that you have on the current GroupWise client. Specifically, we're talking about that you'll have the ability to have the notify function that you have now. You'll have the ability to have multiple sh- and shared calendars that you have now in the GroupWise Windows client. You will also have home views. You will have the ability to categorize all of your incoming items and outgoing items by categories. In other words, being able to create those uh, those uh, category classifications with colors and personalization so that you can track them easier. Okay, so the, the question occurs to me then, though, is why do I even need 
a group-wise client. I can go out there and I can pick up a messaging, calendaring client right now. Does it provide all the functionality I'm looking for? You know, there is a big difference between the what you call consumer email that's available and enterprise class email. And consumer email, there's some great stuff out there. Gmail is an example of a, of a great UI and interface that it, people can get in and get basic functionality for email, calendaring, and, and contact management. But the key there is, is it's basic. And enterprise functionality is what's critical for some of these organizations where they have to provide richer feature sets, including things like archiving, backup and restore, compliance issues where they can assure that they're compliant with, for example, we're very strong in government and healthcare and HIPAA and those kinds of regulations are very critical that those things be adhered to and that data needs to be controlled by the organization in order to do that. Um, also, you know, within the client itself, when you talk about rich scheduling capabilities, for example, in the calendar where you can, uh, you can schedule people, you can schedule resources, you can, uh, manage things within the environment that aren't necessarily available in a consumer email uh, system. The ability to track an email, for example, seeing its status, who's opened it, who's you, who's, you know, taken action on it, uh, the ability to, um, on your contacts to have multiple fields that go beyond the fields of information that you currently have available in some of the more consumer available products. So definitely it's something that an organization needs to look at on when they're trying to meet their end users needs. And uh, one of the things that we've learned as an enterprise email package from the consumer emails is that we need to do a better job of making it end user friendly, that we need to provide some of that great UI. And so that's one of the things we're working hard on in our next release is you'll see, for example, in our web access client, you'll see that great UI look to it for the calendar where you can mouse over and have all that color control. Your web 2.0? We're going to have web 2.0 in group <laughs> Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and it's great stuff. I mean... I can't wait for the beta to get out there and for some of our customers to get in and actually start playing with it. So this is actually coming. You're talking about a beta. We're, we're not talking vaporware here. Nope, actually... it's coming. But you have a, an open source aspect to GroupWise, a truly open source. Published source? Well, GroupWise specifically leverages open standards. And so as we go down the road and look at how we participate in the open community, we leverage open standards like iCal. We have a SOAP uh, interface so that uh, developers can develop to the GroupWise environment. And then in addition to it, the Novell Teaming Plus Conferencing will have its own open source project since it's entirely based on open source. So this is back to Novell's story about having a mix of proprietary and open source, right? And so GroupWise, although it's proprietary software, leverages open standards and opens up the environment so that customers can maximize their ability to interface with it, as well as integrating with and working with open source projects like our Novell Teaming Plus Conferencing. And that teaming product is coming through a partner, is that correct? Correct. Sitescape was a partner that we selected for this. They're a leader technologically in this space. They understand the concepts of this kind of business social networking. They really get it, and they know how to expose that up through. And they were just a natural fit for us to select as a partner. Going beyond that, GroupWise does have a partner ecosystem, doesn't it? Absolutely. Uh, you know, that's probably one of the things every once in a while we get a little bit of critique on is, is yeah, we're not as big as a Microsoft Exchange or an IBM Lotus Notes. But, you know, being number three in the market's a pretty sweet place to be. Just ask Nintendo right now and how the <laughs> success they're seeing. But uh, we, just like Microsoft and IBM, enjoy a nice partner ecosystem. And we have a lot that provide uh, 
solid Linux-based solutions as well as others. Um, you know, I could run down a huge list, but, you know, some of our top premier partners in this space, for example, we have Guava and we have Messaging Architects and um, we have Nova Coast and, you know, it, it's a huge list. But uh, definitely any customer that's seeking some sort of specialized solution with GroupWise, definitely we have some people and partners that can help flesh out that solution. Okay, on the subject of knowledge worker, you've used the term already. Isn't that just anybody who works for the company? Let me clarify in that question on knowledge worker. Knowledge worker comes from, really, if you want to delve into the kind of the history of that terminology in the IT world, comes from Peter Drucker. And I have a quote from him here that I want to read to you that tells you how knowledge work is different. He said, still in developed countries, the central challenge is no longer to make manual work more productive. The central challenge will be to make knowledge workers more productive. Knowledge workers are rapidly becoming the largest single group in the workforce of every developed country. And what it comes down to in the client space, then, is that we, Novell, have to provide a solution, a collaboration solution that becomes a personal assistant to every knowledge worker. Every knowledge worker is their own CEO now. They make the decisions daily on how they interoperate and collaborate with those around them to be productive. And they need a personal assistant just like an executive would. But because you can't provide everybody with their own personal assistant in physical form, you can definitely do it through technology, and that's what our goal is. Okay, and we have screenshots of uh, where you're going with this that we can point people at? Absolutely. If you go out to uh, Cool Blogs, as a matter of fact, Ken Muir has some screenshots in his blogs that you can take a look at. There are also various events that are going on throughout the country with the Work Group Works Tour uh, that include screenshots in the presentations. And then it, ultimately, if you need, if you really want to get a look at it, just email us and we'll send you some screenshots. And look at it. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to publish Bill's email address Go on the website it. for everyone. <laughs> Gentlemen, Gregory, Bill, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks. Thanks for that update on Groupwise, guys. And let's move on to business continuity clustering. I'm Caitlin and I'm here with Randy and we're in the studio today with Brad Rupp, Senior Software Engineer and Ryan Oakleberry, the Senior Software Engineer and we are going to be talking about BCC 1.1. Business Continuity Clustering. Thank you, Randy. <laughs> and the new support pack that's coming out, SP1 for BCC and what's going to be included in that. So... First off, if I can throw in my question, Katie, to maybe for those listeners who aren't familiar with BCC and the way that maybe it interacts with NCS, Novell Cluster Services, Brad, maybe you could address that a little bit. What is BCC and how does it compare or contrast with NCS? Okay, so everybody that's listening, I hope, is familiar with uh, Novell Cluster Services, which is you know, just standard clustering software to make up to 32 nodes in your cluster. What BCC does is it is an add-on product that sits on top of NCS or Novell Cluster Services and extends that to another cluster. So BCC supports from two to four clusters to where you can geographically separate these clusters and then in the event of a disaster, you can fail over one or all of your services from cluster A to, say, cluster B, which is 
could be miles and miles down the road. And then everything's up and running in the event of a disaster or something like that within an hour or so afterward. So maybe a simplistic view is NCS is clustering of services on one particular cluster, and BCC is clustering clusters, and the services from each individual cluster can be migrated to a different cluster as well. That's correct. So with NCS, the single point of failure was the hardware, so the server We've taken that away with NCS. Now, all of a sudden, the single point of failure becomes the data center itself. So what if the data center fails? And BCC solves that problem by backing up that data center, in essence, to another data center so you can fail everything over to that secondary or third or fourth data center if you want. So maybe as a segue there then, Brad, how does that look with comparison to our old SFT3 technology where you had one machine that was there in standby mode, how does that apply to BCC? One big difference is we support 32 nodes in each cluster. So you can, with four clusters supported, you could actually build a 128-node supercluster if you want. With SFT, you have really a server sitting there as a hot standby, if you will, that's doing nothing. With BCC, it's idle, yes. Um, With BCC, you can run these clusters so you don't have these expensive clusters at 15, 16 nodes in each site. And your secondary site sitting idle doing nothing, uh, it can be running in what we call active-active. So both sites are running services. They're local to those users, and then each site can back up the other site. So you could fail over things from site B to site A if you wanted. And each site can act as a backup, and you can run active-active or active-passive if you want. We support both. Excellent. Thank you. So, Brad and Ryan, we've got SP1 coming up. And I hear that's got some some support for some new stuff in there. Yeah, so with BCC 1.1, we added support for Linux was one of the big features that we added. So with 1.0, it was just a netware-only product. With BCC 1.1, which is shipping now, we added support for Linux. SP1 is adding support for IDM3 and Eater 8.8 right now, There's t- and then some bug fixes as well. Just to clear up the Linux support, so we could have like Linux clusters connecting to Linux clusters, and you could fail over, say, if you had NSS volumes, you could fail them over from one cluster to another if need be. Yeah, you could, yeah. And and you can even put a network and Linux cluster in there as well as with the same caveats of NCS that you can only fail over, obviously, an NSS volume, and you can't do the online storage management. This is known stuff for anybody who's doing a mixed NCS cluster with mixed Linux and, and network. But, yeah, certainly. So if you're interested in migrating you have an existing network cluster and you want to implement a bcc but you also want to migrate your existing cluster to linux say provide a path that you could uh, upgrade your network cluster to linux and deploy bcc at the same time you could do a rolling upgrade well that sounds pretty cool and and the key that ryan said there too is it's a rolling upgrade so you don't you're not going to have downtime yeah exactly upgrade yeah so just another question so you could also have like an say a riser file system with an ncp mount say if you were going from one linux cluster to another and you could fail that resource over from one of the clusters to the other yes absolutely with linux you get the added benefit of you can choose a file system for the task you don't necessarily have to run nss we support ext3 or riser 
yeah, you could support, you can fail over any of those file systems to site to site. Just to clarify, you can't fail over from like say the the NCP mount with a riser file system underneath it to an NSS or vice versa. They'd have to be like to like. Yeah, the 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 data mirroring is done at the block level, so they are the like to like file systems at this point. This sounds really good, guys, in theory. But what about in practicum? Do we have any customer success stories that you can share with us? Any real world examples that you might be able to share with us? Yes, we had a really good experience this past BrainShare in Salt Lake. We had a consultant come up to us. This consultant had implemented a BCC with the customer, and sure enough, one weekend, they had some difficulties in at one site in the data center, and their UPS system started to go out. Like I said, it was the weekend, so there wasn't an administrator around, and a manager came in and found the disaster recovery book and went to the section that described failing over resources to the other location. He did a manual failover of resources from one site to another. All went smoothly Monday morning. People come into work. Their services are up and running. Nobody knew the difference. But the key here is that it took 14 days for the primary site to come back online to get this problem fixed. Could you imagine going 14 days without your email services or your file and your print at your business? So that's a good success story that we have. That's great. Now, along those lines, you mentioned a disaster recovery book. Is that something that the consultant had helped out with uh, creating? Is this something that we provide as far as the uh, steps that someone would use to fail these resources over? Where where did that information come from? So that's a good question. The the consultant actually provided that, and that's something we don't in general, we don't really provide because we can't. Everything is different for each customer. So the consultant provided that book and the steps to do that failover and what they needed to do. Another good example is this. We have another customer who is in the financial industry, and their process is such that failing their file and print services over is is low priority. They want to get their bread and butter up, their financial software back up at the secondary site. And so it, it's different per customer. You know, some customers, it may be more a higher priority, for example, for a group-wise system versus this particular customer, it's low priority. And so it's definitely different per customer, and that's something that the consultant or whoever's setting this up needs to deal with. Great. The plan also details scenarios on, on what you should do as far as moving personnel around in the event of disaster. There's a whole plethora of things that have to occur in the event of a disaster, and migrating your software services from one site to another is just a small portion of that plan. Okay, but that's where BCC comes in, is for migrating those yep. resources from one site to another in the case of disaster. So we've basically failed over from one cluster to another, say. What about our data? What about if we've got like one terabyte of data or multiple terabytes of data sitting at site A where we've just had a failure, say, for example, with the UPS? How does that work with people accessing their data if they're then connecting to the remote site? So there's actually a couple of answers to that, I guess, if you will. One thing that we ought to get out really quick is BCC itself does not mirror the data. And the reason for that is there's the SANS do such a good job of it, and there's so many different kinds of SANS and so many different environmental factors. So in the, in the example or the question that you just asked, the SAN will be, fa- will be mirroring the data from site A to site B. Okay. BCC, at the time of failover, will actually manage that SAN. You don't have to go and do anything to make those LUNs available for the cluster at the secondary site or at site B. And, and this is again, this is all with the click of a button in iManager or one command on the on the console. So we'll go out, we'll manage the SAN, and then we'll 
transition the resource from what we call internally secondary to primary. And so secondary meaning that it's a BCC resource that cannot be online. We'll make it primary so that it can be online, and then BCC will tell clustering, okay, you have new disks, online this resource. And it will bring that resource online, and then the clients will be able to access that data depending on their network setup, just with very little interruptions if they set things up properly. And the reason I give that caveat is client reconnectivity is always something else that they need to think about. In general, if you have your two sites in two different data centers, they could be in different subnets and most likely Mm -hmm. are. So you need to deal with that. Whether it's dynamic DNS or VLANs or virtual IP, they're all available with different levels of what the end user needs to do and the admin needs to do from anywhere from virtual IP is completely seamless to dynamic DNS, which is fairly seamless as well, but takes a little bit more time for the DNS servers to update themselves and to replicate. So maybe to clarify a little bit there, Brad, what we're saying is that the data itself is replicated from site to site based on your SAN configuration, and that's up to your SAN administrator to take care of. So that's kind of done underneath BCC. It, it, it is done underneath right? the BCC. And, and to, to talk about that a little bit more, there some of the environmental concerns, for example, is how big is your pipe? Yeah. We actually mm-hmm. had a customer call in and wanted to do this on a T1 line. I'm sorry, it's not going to work on a T1. They're mirroring real-time data on a T1 line. So it, it's how big the pipe is. If you're doing real synchronous mirroring, you, you, you need to be at gigabit speeds. You're also limited on the distance if you're doing synchronous mirroring to roughly 300 kilometers or so, which is 120 miles, I believe, um, if I'm doing my math conversions right. Um, if you need to go beyond that or you have a small – beyond that 300 kilometers or you have a smaller pipe, then you can do some type of asynchronous mirroring at your SAN. And that's those are some of the environmental factors that come into play with the mirroring of the data. And you're right. The SANs are doing it. One of the biggest features, like I mentioned earlier, though, that BCC is adding is the ability to manage that SAN so that it's one-click failover of all your resources. You don't have to go manage that SAN and do all the stuff there to get the, make the LUNs available on the other site and then do your resources. It, it's all done for you via Yeah, BCC. you know, like the, the customer that we had that we were just discussing that, you know, where there's, you know, a manager in there on the weekend and he was able to just do a couple clicks as opposed to calling the SAN vendor and getting the person who actually does the SAN support and then everything else and then having to follow that through. Right, right, exactly. If you were to do that all manually, you would have two, three, maybe four people come in that are expert, have, have uh-huh. expertise in that system. It, once you get BCC properly configured, it's one person, and, and like you said, it can be a manager who's most likely isn't that technical, not you know taking any shots at managers or anything. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're basically taking all of that work that could have been done after some latent period, after a disaster, we're taking care of that and handling that up front and then managing it with BCC so that after the fact, boom, one click and it's done. That's right. We want the failover to happen as fast as possible because while your services are down, you're losing money. We talked with a customer, it was a financial customer back in New York, and they told us that they're losing a million dollars every minute they're down. And that's the type of stuff that we're dealing with. You know, for some customers like that, they can't be down very long. Others, you know, a mom and pop shop could maybe be down a little bit longer, but ultimately you're losing money. So let's get the services back online so that you stay in business and effectively, you know, there's always a potential that you go out of business. So we want to effectively remedy that as well so that the customers stay in business. Excellent. 
Excellent. When you're talking about business continuity and disaster recovery, there's two key terms that you probably will throw around as you're analyzing your, your implementation. That would be recovery time objective and your recovery point objective. And the acronyms are RTO and RPO. BCC provides for an RTO of zero, meaning that you basically won't have any downtime, and a recovery point objective of zero, which means that you won't lose any data in the event of a failover. Excellent. So, so there's two caveats with that. The recovery point objective, meaning no data loss, obviously you have to be doing synchronous mirroring. If you're doing asynchronous mirroring or snapshots every 24 hours, you could potentially lose 24 hours. And then the recovery time objective, um, meaning how fast to fail over, BCC supports the zero RTO, like Ryan said, but we've yet to find a sand vendor that does. So when we're managing that sand and moving the lens back and forth between the two sites, in general, that takes several minutes to do. We're finding that by watching customers that it's generally less than an hour and they can fail over all of their resources. And we're talking 30 or so resources in under an hour and have them back up and running in, in general is what we're finding in the real world. In the real world, what sort of services, I guess, or priority of services are you guys seeing that most of our customers are using? So pretty much all of the implementations of BCC have groupwise in the environment. You're not limited to groupwise. You can implement or deploy basically any of your traditional netware style services such as iPrint and iFolder, file systems such as NSS, and with the addition of Linux, you can also have riser or ext3 file systems exported and have that as an, a cluster resource in your BCC. Great. Anything else that you're seeing, Brad? No, just the big one is groupwise. I made the mistake of, in Brainshare, I was said that every customer that I knew of had groupwise in it, and one of our consultants corrected me. So the majority of them are groupwise, and it works well with groupwise. And, you know, we know email anymore is mission critical, and so it, we, we work well with them, and it, it's a great solution for making your email resilient to disasters. Excellent. Thank you. So let's assume a customer has got their cluster installed. Potentially they've got two clusters installed. What components do they need to install and configure from BCC perspective to actually set this up and get it working? Um, so before we answer that, we got to put in a plug for Novell Consulting or consulting in general. And the reason for this is, I mean, yeah, I work for Novell. I'd love to see you hire Novell Consulting left and right, but it's not necessarily for that. But BCC is pretty complex in that it touches a lot of things. We touch the SAN, we touch DNS, we touch the cluster, all of these types of things. And so unless you have an expert in all those areas in-house, you're going to need to bring somebody in who can help. And now having said that, once you have your clustering installed, you can go ahead and install BCC on top of that. The install is straightforward. Then you have to set up um, Identity Manager, and we use Identity Manager. We have a custom driver, if you will, to keep the clusters in sync. And you have to install Identity Manager even if you're installing BCCs in a single tree, which 99% of our customers are doing that. So once you install this IDM driver, then you can go ahead and start configuring BCC um, enable the resources that you want to be protected by BCC. So that's another point is you don't have to BCC enable all your resources. And a good example of that's your DHCP server that you would have two separate DHCP servers at each side. You wouldn't be failing that over site to site. But So you can pick and choose those resources. You make them BCC resources. You need to deal with how the clients are going to reconnect. So your virtual, your VLAN or virtual IP or dynamic DNS, something like that. And then you have to start 
working with the sand to make sure that that the scripts and the methods are in place with BCC so that it can communicate with the SAN, make those LUNs available on the secondary side. So there's quite a process to set it up. It is doable by the customer if they have expertise in all of these fields. In, in general, we, we definitely recommend getting consult, some type of consultant involved that knows BCC. And there are non-Novell consultants that are familiar with BCC. I've worked with several of them. Great. Okay, that sounds really good. So we touched briefly on what's coming up in the new SP1 for BCC11. Do we have a timeline for when we're expecting to see that? Uh, yeah, so we're currently working on releasing BCC 1.1 SP1. It is actually, we've, we've done our final test. We've submitted everything to build the official patches that will come out in the red carpet channel and, and via Novell Technical Support or NTS. And we've, we're, we've received those patches. We're now throwing them back on servers now to make sure that they're the same code that we submitted and everything's good. And uh, within a week or so, we hope the SP1 will be out and available for download and customers can get that. So are there any particular fixes that customers should be aware of that are included in that SP1? The biggest thing for SP1 is that we have added support for eDirectory 8.8 and IDM3. So what particular fixes, or are there any big fixes that current customers should be aware of that are included in SP1? Um, yeah, there's there's a, quite a few other products that we've gotten fixes and patches for. And if you go out to the BCC documentation on the README, there's a known issues type of section. I don't know that it's exactly worded that, but in the README, we list some of the patches to other products and things that customers for BCC need. Um, a good example of this is the OpenWebM SIMOM. Um, we've seen a couple of customers that are having connection leaks and memory leaks, and when they put their BCC in in place, and we found that it wasn't BCC, but it was some funny things that the SIMOM was doing, and so that's been fixed. Um, of course, we have LibC, and we always recommend that the latest LibC is out there, and we have uh, references to the latest LibC as well. A few things on Linux. For example, there's some LUM fixes that we require on Linux as well as OpenWebM out there as well. In general, if customers will watch that, we try to keep that up to date when a new patch comes out for some some other third-party product that BCC re- requires or relies on, and we, we try to keep that up to date. So if, if you watch that, you'll be able to get some of those fixes as well. And that sounds cool. We'll put a link to that on the website so that if anybody has trouble finding it, they can go there and grab it. Oh, good idea. You know what, guys? Before we let you go, this impending release sounds great. Uh, what do we have next? What's coming up next for BCC? Yeah, so once we get BCC 1.1 support pack 1 out the door, we're going to put our heads down and get to work on version 1.2, and that will add support for our Cypress product, which is OES 2, which should come out later this year. And included in that is the cool dynamic storage technology that allows you to tier your storage, and you should be able to integrate that into BCC and do some new cool things with that. For those of you who are wondering what the dynamic storage technology is, we did a podcast with Jason Williams and Dana Hendrickson on that, and you can go and have a look on the website and download that if you want to get a better understanding of what the dynamic storage technology is all about fantastic stuff so you really should do it you know and one other thing that will be cool when if you're talking cypress is obviously we add support for 64-bit on linux which will be nice but then once you start playing with virtual machines in your bcc that opens up at a whole plethora of cool things that you can do with disaster recovery and vms and in your cluster and 
just kind of makes your head spin when you start thinking about it. So that about wraps it up for today. And we'd like to thank you, Ryan Oakleberry and Brad Rupp, for coming in the studio today. Um, we hope to see you sometime again in the future. So thanks for coming. Thank right, you. Thank you. For those of you interested in where Aaron has been this week, he's hanging out in Australia. That's just plainly wrong. It's I don't know how he got to go and I didn't get to go. I don't understand it. But Did Dave you? just got back. Yeah, yeah, you were out last week. How was your trip? Two weeks, actually. I spent a week in Prague and uh, in the Czech Republic and a week in Nuremberg in Germany. And in Prague, I was uh, doing some kernel developer training and learned a lot about other kernel features than the one I know a little bit about, the Slab Memory Manager. Spent time with lead developers for some of the kernel subsystems and shared my brain with a bunch of other kernel noobs. It was a lot of fun. Unlucky buggers. As you know, I've moved to the Samba team, so the week I spent in Germany was to spend time with my team, and I met a lot of the other developers and people working in Nuremberg with Sousa. The KDE guys took me to lunch, and I had a great time talking with them about what's coming up in KDE Forum. We'll try and get to that in a future podcast. Well, that's it for this show. Remember that Novell Open Audio is brought to you by Novell Users International in conjunction with Novell Incorporated. Remember, most of our content is directed by our listener community, so please send us your requests and comments by leaving them at novell.com slash openaudio or by emailing us at openaudio at novell.com. We're out of here, so we'll see you next time.